Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I believe it, it was, in every sense of the word, a tragedy. The totality of the data clearly depicts that a woman who was mentally ill was executed. For the very first time, the greatest minds in criminology have come together to dissect the psyches of some of the world's most prolific serial killers. These forensic psychiatrists, psychologists and pathologists have an incredible depth of knowledge and often first-hand insight into these killers, helping us to understand what makes a monster. The following interview with Professor Jethro Toomer was recorded in July 2019 for Crime and Investigation's TV series, Making a Monster. Professor Toomer has spent over 35 years practicing forensic and clinical psychology working at Florida International University, as well as a treatment consultant for the NBA and the NFL. Specialising in death row cases, Professor Toomer has interviewed a number of high-profile serial killers, including Ted Bundy and Eileen Warnos. Caution, the subject matter of this interview contains graphic descriptions and is often very disturbing. The serial killers that, that I have evaluated were all individuals uh, that I found to be motivated by the fact that their early developmental history was so tainted and so traumatic and that there was insufficient intervention, if you will, that would enable them to try to, in some way, compensate for those early deficits. A basic notion that individuals have is that uh, if a person engages in some type of horrendous act, uh, they must be a, a, a psychopath or sociopath. Sometimes the terms are used interchangeably. Basically, when we talk about the person uh, being a psychopath or a sociopath. We usually refer to our individuals in common parlance tend to refer to the individual as someone without a conscience, uh, someone who has no remorse, someone who focuses primarily on themselves. And when we talk about a serial killer, someone sees someone 
who engages this kind of behavior, they say, oh, person must not have any, any feelings, must, must have a conscience, uh, probably didn't have any remorse for what has happened. But the, the notion of a psychopath uh, does not carry over into all individuals who may be serial killers because individuals oftentimes function based upon their, their deficits. Uh, and sometimes the, what you find is that mental illness, other kinds of environmental factors have contributed to the person's behavior. As part of the, the process, I think it's important to always, to, uh, always keep in mind that we need to pay attention to human behavior. And what I mean by that is uh, there are signs when individuals are in trouble. There are signs. They don't just wake up one day and say, I'm going out and I'm going to be a serial killer or I'm going to start killing people today. There are signs. It's usually only afterwards in hindsight that we recognize the sign. Oh, yeah, I remember now. But we have to pay attention and recognize those particular signs that individuals provide that say to us, I'm in trouble uh, and I need some help. Uh, and I think that's the thing that, that we see in these evaluations that we do. For example, we, uh, when we look back at Eileen Warnos, if we look back at Ted Bundy, they were, the signs were there that, hey, there's something wrong. The signs don't necessarily say, I'm going to be a serial killer. But the signs do say, hey, there's something wrong. In 1989 and 1990, Eileen Warnos murdered seven men while working as a prostitute in Florida. Convicted in 1992, Warnos was executed by lethal injection 10 years later in October 2002. Professor Toomer carried out the psychological assessment on Warnos prior to her trial, where she discussed her troubled life and transition to serial killing in unprecedented detail. When I first met her, the thing that, that stood out to me was that she was, for the most part, very, very fragile. She was cooperative but reluctant, if you will, in terms of her engagement and so forth. Uh, she answered questions. Her responses were terse, not unusually revealing in any way. She was cooperative and she understood why I was there and the purpose for what was uh, what I was doing in terms of the evaluation, the limits of confidentiality, my relationship with her attorneys. And, and she, was, she was able to, to understand all of that. And she agreed to be interviewed by me and to be evaluated by me as part of that process. I began by explaining to her the process with respect to trying to get a complete picture of who she was, uh, that oftentimes there, 
you know, fragmented pieces of an individual's development that are often uh, taken out of context. And what we wanted to do was to try to get a complete picture of who she was so that as part of her defense, uh, we could explain who Eileen Warnos was, how she got to be the person that, that she is today, and some of the factors that, that uh, factors involved in that. One of the first questions that I ask, that I ask oftentimes, is I ask the individual to provide a recollection, if they have one, uh, some of their earliest or earliest recollection of their family history, their family composition. And she said to me at the time that she recalls having a conversation with her mother when she was a young girl. She doesn't remember, she recalls being very young. But she remembers her mother telling her that she uh, tried to abort but was unsuccessful. And from that point, most of what she said to me was negative. In other words, uh, the environment that she described, the people that she described, the experiences that she had were all negative, all adversarial from that point on. The household that she grew up in, um, you really had to stretch to call it a household. Uh, I believe that her mother was very young. I believe her mother was 14 at the time. And I believe her father was 16 at the time. And that union didn't last very long. And as a result of that, Eileen wound up being with the grandmother, her parents separating, and each parent going in different direction, with Eileen being left with her grand grandparents. Uh, that relationship obviously was characterized by neglect, abandonment, uh, isolation, all kinds of emotional and psychological issues from that lack of stability and that lack of predictability. And then going to grandparents, and uh, Eileen reported later that she was sexually abused by the grandfather. Uh, and so you have all of these factors coming into play that basically uh, characterize the, the, uh, the, the capriciousness for want of a better term, of her entire environment. There was nothing predictable. There was no sameness, if you will, in terms of the events that characterized her life. Uh, and that, was the, that formed the early, the early backdrop of, of her existence. And from that point, uh, her behavior began to decline in terms of her performance in school, uh, there were issues of promiscuity, uh, drug use starting around age 15 or so, and then her subsequently dropping out of school. In addition to the fact that she 
reports being uh, uh, sexually molested by her grandfather. She also reported that she had slept with her brother. Uh, so there were all these factors that simply were representative of the dysfunction that surrounded her uh, and this kind of almost crucible of despair that was building as she, as she progressed and as she grew. The conventional wisdom is that somehow at a certain age, we develop the skills that we need in order to function. In other words, making appropriate decisions and the like. Uh, but nothing could be further from the truth. In order for individuals to develop a consistent pattern of behaving and thinking, there are three things that are critical in their developmental years. Uh, stability, predictability, uh, safety. And if those are missing, it's difficult for the individual to gain any traction in terms of how they are going to function and how they are going to, uh, to move, move forward. What winds up happening is that absent that stability, predictability, and safety, the individual, for example, uh, doesn't learn to trust. The individual uh, spends a great deal of effort in basically surviving, in basically trying to get from one day to the next. So under ordinary circumstances, if you have an individual who grows up in an environment that is safe, that is uh, stable, that is predictable, then that individual can use the time, the guidance, what have you, to learn how to move forward. If you have the situation such as Eileen Warnos had, your energy is all devoted primarily to one thing, surviving. I believe that, that uh, in talking and communicating, she was very honest and open. You have to understand that I saw her over several times. And what would happen is that uh, her inability to function uh, was reflective of the internal deficits manifested by uh, what I diagnosed as a borderline personality disorder. What would happen is that with this mood disorder that is uh, reflective of uh, variability in terms of, of emotional functioning, what happens is that you get a different person almost every time. In some instances, I would come to see her and she would be rational, coherent, and responsive. Other times I would come and she would refuse to see me. Another time I would come and she would talk about uh, how bad her representation was, that her attorneys were gonna sell her down the river, that I was in cahoots with her attorneys to sell her down the river. And then other times uh, she would talk about how appreciative she was
what tends to happen is that when a person is as needy as Eileen was, when a person is as desperate as she was for acceptance and recognition and validation, what happens is if you find anything, if the person finds anything that looks like that, what they tend to do is they are so desperate that they grasp it so tightly that oftentimes the object runs away or moves away because it's so overwhelming. The person on the other end, in this case Eileen Warnos, then looks at that and says, mm-hmm, see there, you can't trust anybody because what they'll do is uh, they will leave you, they will desert you, they will abandon you. So in essence, she was searching and, uh, for something but at the same time, she was her own worst enemy. And in doing that, she was vulnerable. Vulnerable for exploitation, uh, vulnerable for the kinds of things that she was trying to escape. And so she was basically involved in this kind of vicious cycle that she could not get out of. She was looking for something, and she met uh, Ms. Moore. I believe Tyra Moore was her name. And they needed money. And she said, okay, I know how I can go out and get money. And so she decided that she, in terms of saving the relationship or maintaining the relationship, however she saw it at that particular point in time. But at that particular point in time, she saw Tyra as the person who would provide some acceptance, some validation. And so she was willing to go out and do uh, whatever in order to get money so that they could, they could survive and function. Her, her activities were designed to support the lifestyle of she and, and Ms. Moore and also to, in a way, assure continued acceptance. Whenever Ms. Moore was unhappy, the whole idea of Eileen Warnos being subsequently rejected in some way comes into play, and then her response is, I'll do anything to make sure that I don't lose this potential uh, source of acceptance and validation. And that was what fueled her, her behavior. She kept going out because she was providing the, the financial means for, for their existence. And she was also pleasing the person in exchange uh, for acceptance and, uh, and some validation. She described the first case uh, where she was uh, charged with the murder of Mr. M Mr. Mallory. She described it as an incident where she was out. Uh, she was working as a prostitute to make money to support herself and, and, and Ms. Moore, and that uh, she wanted, to, wanted it to be a business arrangement uh, she did what she was supposed to do. She said, if he had just paid me, 
it, that would have been the end of it. But then he wanted me to do something kinky, is how she put it. And I wasn't going to allow anything like that to happen. I wasn't going to do anything like that. And that is how his, his, uh, his murder occurred. I, I believe uh, that that event and, and what took place triggered something in her that led to her acting in the way that she did. And that is that when you have a person growing up, this kind of instability and, and what have you that we have described, that what you're talking about is someone who basically is motivated by survival. Their whole goal is how do I survive from one day to the next? And if, you, if the individual encounters something that resembles or that is a cue that is representative of some trauma or past event, then that is going to bring to the fore that instinct for survival. And that is what I believe happened in this particular case. I think that with regard to Ms. Ms. Warnos and how she felt following that, following the event, uh, I believe that what she was doing was protecting herself. That's how she saw it. She saw herself once again uh, being devalued, being maligned by an individual. And in this particular instance, she was protecting herself. Uh, it came out and it was uh, uncovered during the trial that he was a, a, a sex offender. He, in fact, he, I believe he had served time in a New York prison uh, for various uh, sexual offenses. Uh, but that information was, was not allowed in the, in the trial and never came up during, his, during, his, during that particular trial uh, and with regard to the facts of the case. After a troubled upbringing in which she was sexually abused by her grandfather and gave birth to a child, having been raped by one of her grandfather's associates, Eileen Warnos left home and began working as a prostitute. While there were some lesser crimes over the next 15 years, Warnos's first of her seven murders came in November 1989, when she was living with Tyria Moore. She was an unusual character in, in a lot of ways. Some reports have described her as a psychopath, sociopath, psychopath. And I don't see her in that way at all. I see her as someone who was extremely needy, who was extremely desperate, motivated by their deficiencies, seeking basic, the satisfaction of basic needs, that we all have validation, acceptance, uh, and the like, and who, as a result of those particular, in, in searching for those particular, those particular factors, was in turn vulnerable, and was exploited um, on a recurring basis, and that phenomena and that cycle was uh, what was repeated and what continued to motivate her, her behavior. 
and because of the deficits that we alluded to earlier in terms of your cognition, in terms of your thought process, you, you aren't able, you aren't weighing alternatives and projecting consequences. You're surviving. And that's what she was, she was doing. She was surviving. And individuals might say, well, didn't she know? Uh, didn't she think? Well, no, she didn't know and she didn't think. Because when you come from a background like hers, you don't, uh, you know, what, what's impaired is your cognition. What also is impaired is your behavior. And what also is impaired is your emotional responsiveness, your affect. And she was impaired in all of these areas. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The stability, the lack of stability, predictability, and sameness doesn't mean that you're going to be a serial killer. What it does mean is that you will be dysfunctional. And that dysfunction may very well lead you to become a serial killer, or you may do something else uh, that is dysfunctional or what have you. If you don't have that stability and you don't get, and there is no intervention, uh, then what you wind up being is a victim out there in the real world trying to function, and you can't because you are so ill-equipped to do so. When I, when I heard that she had been executed and I looked at that in conjunction with some of the last comments that she had made, I think it was clear that uh, her mental illness was, was prominent. It had progressed. And I s remember thinking to myself, what a waste in that 
here was a person who was mentally ill. And her mental illness manifested itself and it became progressively worse as time went on. And the focus was on the, the basically the execution and not a great deal of attention was given to her mental state that she had problems, that she had difficulty. I, I believe it, it was in every sense of the word a tragedy. She was mentally ill uh, and she had demonstrated that mental illness almost from the very beginning. At least when I say the very beginning, when I saw her, when I started seeing her as part of my role in evaluating her, uh, she had demonstrated that here was a person who was mentally ill. To, re to reach that conclusion, you have to look at all of the data. You can't cherry pick the data that you want in terms of rendering a particular conclusion or goal. You look at the totality of the data. The totality of the data uh, with regard to Eileen Warnos clearly depicts that a woman who was mentally ill was executed. Coming up in the next episode of Making a Monster, The Tapes, Dr. Fred Berlin discusses the serial killer Michael Ross. For a deeper understanding of how these serial killers came to be, make sure you watch the TV show Making a Monster, Mondays at 9pm or catch up on demand. To let us know your thoughts on Eileen Warnos, John Wayne Gacy, or any of the other killers featured in the series, use hashtag makingamonster or leave a review. And search for crimeinvestigation.co.uk for clips, articles, competitions, podcasts and more. Making a Monster The Tapes features interviews recorded by Monster Films for the Crime and Investigation TV series and was voiced by me, Cherry Healy, Produced by Sam Pearson and Chloe Frost, with editing by Joel Porter. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's Amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.